Hey guys, welcome to another Nerdy Show comic show. I'm Cap. And this is Aaron. This episode is actually going to be devoted to our Heroes Con experience. Uh, I personally have never been there before, but uh, Aaron and Brian Clevenger always told me good things about it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like comics and comics. Dude, it is so <laughs> awesome. I don't ever want to not go to Heroes Con. Same here. The, the only bad thing about Heroes Con is it's uh, close proximity to San Diego Comic Con. You know, Timing, like you kind of yeah. have to pick one or the other. But I'm doing both this year, so screw it. Everything else about it is amazing. You get some A-level people, and then you get a lot of like up-and-comers or indie people. You can like discover new things there. It's, it's badass. Yeah, I, I would say with a show like Megacon, which is our home convention in Orlando, it, it's a pretty big affair. Like they use two full convention halls, and uh, and those are large convention halls. I would say Heroes Con is maybe a fourth the size of Megacon, and has ten times, maybe even a hundred times, the creative talent present. But you know, it had way more comic stuff. There was no Yoi booths. Yeah, I couldn't find a paddle anywhere. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's cool. I love that the Indie Island feel that they have there and that, you know, you just discover new things. It's awesome. Yeah. And um, we had a really, really great time there. Like I said, the talent was through the roof, you know, and a lot of times you'll see the unknowns in Artist Alley, like people either starting up with not too much experience or just kind of like the dregs of the industry, but not in this case. <laughs> in this case, like I would say even the people who I had no frame of reference for who've never worked on anything I was aware of, there were by and large, everybody there had a lot of talent. Yeah. And some of those people um, were like nominated for Eisner's. Yeah. Because, you know, like. Every year there's an Eisner's list and there's always some stuff like, well, what the hell is that? I own a comic book store. Why the hell do I not know about this stuff? I mean, maybe I'm just a mainstream douchebag, but I don't think so. And, you know, I um, actually met a couple people that are nominated for Eisner's that I hadn't read their work and I admitted it and I bought it there and it was awesome. <laughs> so that's fun. Yeah. I met a lot of cool people as well. Like uh, there's this woman, Erica Henderson, who uh, Brian and I were talking to at the bar afterwards and she seemed really cool. We had a good time. And then like I checked her stuff out. Not only was she very talented, but she's actually one of the artists for the first issue of um, Marceline and the Scream Queens. Oh, nice. Anyway, Heroes Con. Heroes Cut Con was amazing. Uh, Scott Snyder is just a charming man. He, I, I like that guy. You know, he's writing yeah. Batman and Swamp Thing, and you know he has his indie stuff. He has, you know, whatever. He did Severed. He did. Um, he's doing American Vampire, but he just like made a point to uh, get a beer with me. You know, like he he made that a point that he wanted to do that, and then he introduced me to Jeff Lemire from you know Animal Man and Sweet Tooth and all that, who I just gushed over like a fanboy i was just like oh my god you know like scott snyder's right here and it's like me and scott snyder are boys now we're like peers but jeff lemire oh my god when you know he's not the big name snyder is you know he's not writing batman but um anyway jeff lemire I, this is the first time i met him he lives in toronto and i just had to tell him how much i love his animal man it was amazing so <laughs> Uh, those guys, like having both those guys there, was uh, a huge amount of star power from DC. Like only the best DC books were represented there. Like uh, Cliff, the artist for Wonder Woman. Yeah, he was there. Um, got some incredible prints from him. He does a postcard set of um, 1980s albums and film posters, but with superheroes. Yeah, good really, stuff. really cool. Like, yeah, yeah, that that was amazing. I wish he would do more stuff like that. Well, he he's busy, uh, you know, drawing one of the best books DC's putting out. So right. yeah, Wonder Woman's been really well, and he's a he's a great artist for that, and he really got to reimagine all of the Greek gods, which is you know an oh, amazing yeah. thing. He made it kind of like um, Neil Gaiman's, you know, The Endless, you know, just reimagining these characters as something of his own. I dug it, man. I dug that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Christos Gage was there too, who um, does uh, 
you know, the the Buffy and Angel stuff. Yeah. And uh, he was a sweetheart. He was cool at the bar. The entire Hickman crew was there. Oh, yeah. Hickman and, and all of his minions were there. I mean, they, <laughs> you know, it's, that show is, is really amazing. And, and the other thing is just the way you can interact with the people, just the accessibility of everyone. You know, they're all going to the same bar eventually. And uh, the lines are never that long. And the panels are never where you have to, like, wait in a line to get into. Do you, you know? like, do you want a genuine human interaction with a comic book creator that you love? Come to Heroes oh, you're Con. talking about Bill Willingham? Because um, that was genuine. I mean, he no, was that, a great guy. We actually moderated a lot of panels at uh, Heroes Con and uh, had a great time. One of the, uh, the first one we did uh, was uh, Tony and I spoke with Bill Willingham. It was a panel all about fables, and it was just him and us. Yeah. I was there, but in the front row, just, you know, supporting my guys. Heckling. Well, you know, it was it was cool. I really enjoyed going there. I learned yeah. stuff. It was fun. The guy was really forthcoming. Yeah, he was. And he actually had a big announcement at that panel. A new uh, convention happening next year that's uh, Fables related. It's Fables Town. Yeah, Fables Town <laughs> and beyond. And uh, we're going to be playing, actually, the majority of our panel with him in this episode. Nice. And uh, he'll, he'll give you the full lowdown and you'll hear all my questions about all that. He also, he, he showed up 15 minutes early, and Tony and I were there, and we were just kind of warming the crowd up, and, uh, and then he interviewed us, which was <laughs> odd. That's um, awesome. So we'll, we'll be sticking that in somewhere. Uh, that's definitely worth listening to, because he gets into um, copyright issues of yeah. like being able to use Peter Pan or not use Peter Pan, and, and a character from Disney that he used on accident. I mean, it's, it's a great... It, it's worth listening to. It's awesome. Uh, oh man, the, the stories this guy this guy tells. Bill Williams is going to tell, bar none, the greatest tabletop role playing story <laughs> right. you will ever fucking hear. I don't think there's any way that anyone could ever rival as amazing a tabletop experience as this. But uh, I know it was epic. It involved it like nuclear stuff. Yeah, it, it and... involved it involved actual nuclear weapons, right. And the eventual involvement of Gary Gygax. Oh, yeah. It, so it, it culminated very well. It was a great story. It had a nice that. build. <laughs> so, like I said, more more on that later. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about the different panels that we uh, were moderating and also playing clips from them a little bit later on in this episode. But first, let's uh, cut to a song. We got Head Like I.O. by Inverse Phase. This is from his Nine Inch Nails Chiptunes album, Pretty 8 Machine.
So uh, I came away from Heroes Con with some really good books. I got a book called WYSIWYG by Ed Piscor. He's a guy who's done um, three of Harvey Picard's books in the past. And uh, this book's called WYSIWYG. It doesn't come out for a few months, but he had it there. And what struck me was that the hardbound book is actually in the style of uh, an Apple-like uh, console. And it's got uh, a different kind of like depth for the floppy drive, and the screen is glossy. And then a main image in the screen is, uh, is an old like Apple art program. I forget what it was and called. And then the spine. And, yeah, and then the spines got their, uh, their Apple rainbow stripes. And uh, it's a graphic novel based on um, some of the, the greatest legends of early hackers, kind of all compiling them into uh, to one fictional character, but based on many very real people. And uh, I haven't read all of it yet, but so far it's uh, really good, really cool, and uh, an interesting way to learn the history of hacking. I'm probably going to put something together where our SciTech correspondent, John, will read this and uh, in a future episode let us know what he thinks. I also picked up an actual novel. Uh, Paul Tobin was there with uh, his book, Prepare to Die. Um, He's a comic book writer. He is, yes. And uh, this book is uh, very recently out, and it's about a superhero with only a couple days left to live. He uh, succumbs to an ultimatum from one of his villains, and this is the process of him wrapping up his life. I haven't cracked it yet, but I'm excited to. Like All-Star Superman. Yeah, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I picked up a, uh, a really cool art book called uh, Notebook Drawings 2011 to 2012 by Jim Rugg. Jim Rugg's the guy behind Aphrodisiac. And uh, if you're on Tumblr at all, you may recognize some images from this. Uh, most famously, he has a, a rendition of the Photoshop color selector thing, all the buttons and dials and, and hex and everything done entirely in ballpoint pen, different colors of ballpoint pen. And it looks amazing. So this is a, a spiral-bound notebook collection of incredible ballpoint pen drawings with detail that you really never thought possible. I actually draw in ballpoint pen, and I, I love it because you can you can shade like it's a pencil. But the idea of um, of seeking out all kinds of different colors and re- basically rendering it the same way you would a, a colored pencil uh, never struck me, and this is absolutely awe-inspiring. It looks like someone was really, really bored in class yeah. and just doodled, but amazing stuff and funny stuff, too. Like, some of it is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> There's some uh, how-to-draw-the-marvel-way sort of uh, anatomy Extreme of cable. way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You can see how how, uh, how broke the Liefeld design is once you turn it into raw muscle mass. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's awful. I also picked up uh, two books by Becky Cloonan. They look like they could be Northlanders issues, really, but they're both written and drawn by her. There's The Meyer and Wolves. Uh, haven't cracked them yet, but very, very excited to also. If you weren't going to pick those up, I would have. So Because we were both at our table at the yeah. same time. I'm like... I'll let him pick that up and read it when it's done. <laughs> but what I got was I finally got Vader and Son by, you know, yes, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Brown, Brown, which was hilarious. And, you know, whenever you get Jeffrey Brown at a at a show, he will do a sketch, like an actual, like, even like colored little tiny sketch in your book every yeah. time. He's amazing. He's such a charming, charming, low-key guy, but really charming. Just really, really cool. And, and Vader and Son was hilarious. I mean, it was so funny. He's going to be at Star Wars Celebration, too. So. Is that confirmed? Is he going to do it? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Aaron and I were writing it pretty hard to make sure that happened because no, it's, he's it's brilliant. It. Yeah, his uh, agent uh, emailed me. That's so. awesome. Yeah, I was like, oh, cool. That's neat. I don't have this kind of follow through. Maybe that's why um, <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Brown's a professional and I just own a comic book store. <laughs> Vader and Son is a really, really cool book. It's official Star Wars, actually. Yeah. And um, it's these kind of like one page gags of... What if Darth Vader, I guess, raised young Luke Skywalker? Yeah, it's episode 3.5 is what it says. Like, it's a four-year-old <laughs> Luke. Like, between the two, you know, trilogies. Like, what if he was raising a four-year-old Luke? You know, I mean, 
And it's hilarious. Inexplicably so. in his Tatooine farmer's garb and not yes. some kind of Padawan deal. Yes, but. yes. Other thing I got was something called One Soul by uh, Ray Fox. Yes. And um, that is Eisner nominated. And, you know, I was and it was by Oni, too. And I just didn't order it. I missed it on my order form. And it's basically like all these different people. Each panel in each page is one person's life story, their soul there. It's called One Soul. And you can read someone's life by just reading that one panel on every page. Or you can read it all together and get a different story of how. And it's people all different walks of life and all different time periods, too. What inspired it was his son died in childbirth. Well, okay. uh, in 2010, and that spawned this whole thing of like, what's soul, what's life, what's this, and it's just really profound. It's really great work, and you know that was one of those things I was embarrassed I hadn't heard of. Yeah, I actually that was it's funny that you mentioned that. This is exactly the same experience I had with it because I was called in a kind of a last minute deal to moderate a panel with Ben Templesmith, Brett Waddell, and Ray Fox. Yeah. And uh, and I was looking at Ray's stuff. I'd never heard his name before. And I was like, oh, shit, Eisner nominations. Look at this. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I did the panel with him. I introduced him. I listened to him talk. And afterwards, I really wanted to talk with him more and pick up his book. But dude hightailed it immediately afterwards. So I didn't. So I'm really glad you picked it yeah, up. you can borrow that from me. Uh, nice. We, we can trade, like, you know, trading cards with, with some of this <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> and actually, that's a good point to bring up. One of the things I unfortunately didn't get the chance to record was the Ben Templesmith panel. So it's worth mentioning at least a little bit because uh, it was great. It was a great panel. It was called Being a Creator, How to Navigate Publishers and What You Should Know. Oh, dude, I would love to hear that. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was, um, it was really great. But basically... Um, talking about okay, so you've you've got some interest, and uh, you know what now? Who do you go with? What to look for in in contracts? What you know? What to be concerned with? How much does it cost you out of pocket to do an image book? No, <laughs> they, they didn't. They didn't touch on that. All right, because <laughs> I'm gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious too. Yeah, I'm curious too. So yeah, we had a really great time talking to everybody. Um, Scott C was there. He was a uh, he's a guy who does um, different kind of cute renditions of uh, pop culture characters, and it's meant to be like showdowns. So they're just kind of like staring at each other, but it's a really cute oh, yeah. like art tribute thing to different aspects of pop culture. And uh, it was neat because there was a lot of times where uh, I'd, I'd see somebody be like, "Oh shit, I recognize that," just like the uh, the ballpoint drawings, and uh, and like I saw that on the internet. Hi, you're from the internet, but real life, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it was neat to actually be able to interact firsthand with that uh, that art community that I creep at, and that's what Heroes Con is. Yeah, you know, that's part of Heroes Con. It's pretty awesome. I'm definitely going next year. We'll have an even, even bigger posse. We need to go there with an agenda. We need to go there with something on Kickstarter. We're doing. <laughs> that's what we need to do. Well, you want to hear, you want to some Kickstarter news? Some yes. incredible comics Kickstarter news. Okay. As of like uh, a couple minutes before we started this recording, uh, a Kickstarter ended, and it was the Cerebus High Society Kickstarter. Huh. Have you heard okay. about this, Aaron? Yes. Okay, so the the goal was to turn um, to turn the second volume of Cerebus, the the one where it really sort of comes into its own high society, uh, into a digital and audio format, and um, they were only asking for six thousand dollars. At the end, they raised sixty three thousand six hundred and thirty four dollars. <laughs> did you give any money to it? I did. <laughs> nice. <laughs> there are lots of cool rewards, and um, now that they have all that money, they're gonna do the entire run of Cerebus in digital and audio format. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, every digital issue will include front covers, editorials, essays, letters, and back covers at 99 cents an issue. And uh, in addition to the digital versions, the, uh, Dave Sim is also providing audio and video content, including him performing all of the hundreds of Cerebus characters' dialogue, as well as text and captions from the storyline via the audio version of the, the nice. books. 
and with 20% more misogyny. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, it has all the notes and all the, you know, who knows what, what kind well, of... Well, that's later. <laughs> right. That's way later. There's like, there's 200 issues before that happens. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Let's actually cut to some uh, panel audio. Let's talk about um, the panel you hosted, Aaron, Creator Own Comics, with Steve Niles, Phil Noto, and Kevin Mellon. Yeah, I hosted a panel on Creator Own Heroes, which was awesome. It's a uh, anthology book they have. It's not really an anthology. It's like a mashup. It's two stories with these different creators that are in the same book. And it also has interviews and cosplay and art and, and awesome stuff. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I like the fact that they're getting the fan bases of Niles and Palmiati together to buy one book. And it's uh, $3.99. So, I mean you're not even you know it should be more money you know right. you should you should be buying two separate books for about that money so and, and whereas mark miller's uh cunt magazine or clint, clint if you don't squint your eyes um it's uh that's more of a magazine that includes comics yes. and this is a comic that includes some article stuff yeah it has an interview with neil gaiman which is awesome and then it has like the making of kind of for phil noto a photo shoot with the chick with the cosplay and everything so you know we really got into like why they're doing it what what spawned it what spawned the title of it and, you know, how the entire industry seems to be against any new ideas. Like, they, they hear that and they're like, no, no, that'll never work. That'll never work. You're an idiot for doing it. Why are you doing it? I hate you. You're full of yourself. You think you have all the answers. Screw you. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, okay, they had an idea. They want to risk their own money on. Shut the fuck up. And let them risk their own money on it. You yeah. know, like, and obviously the business as usual wasn't working well for anybody that well. You know, like they weren't, you know, they thought... Well, maybe we'll try it this way, and boom. And they also get into some stuff with uh, Epitaph uh, Records and things Steve Niles is is doing with that, and you know, just the whole thing of like what it means to be a creator, to own your own stuff, and how you get that out there. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun panel. I didn't really have to say much because um, they were just going on and on because it was so um, so important to them, and and they're so, they they have so much more passion, I think, when they're talking about their own stuff than than the company stuff. Yeah. And plus, with the company stuff, you're always like on like eggshells. Like, what can I reveal? What can't I reveal? Uh, well, I can't say this or I can't say anything about that editor, you know? And when they're talking about their own stuff, they're just like loose lipped. They're just going <laughs> on, you know? They don't have to check with anybody. So here's some excerpts from that panel. <laughs> I, I can introduce Phil Noto. Uh, this is the very talented Phil Noto who's been doing Hello. company and creator own stuff for a while. And um, my sales pitch, because I own a comic shop when I was pitching this to kids, was uh, do you want to see Phil Noto draw nipples? That aren't his own. And this is Kevin Mallon. Is doing American Muscle with me in this. Really, you know, where it started was really funny because actually it started here at a Heroes Con, where um, I noticed me and Jimmy were sitting next to each other. We had our tables next to each other, and we had two completely different lines, for like the same length line, but no repetition. So we were like, well, I sell this many books. You saw this many books. What would happen if we actually teamed up? And that sort of snowballed into, you know, what we were trying to do. Because a lot of way, this, you know, what we would have done is what two, a four issue series maybe. Yeah. You know, three issue series. Go through the usual motions, but we've just found, you know, with this, it's like a strength in numbers mentality. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, it's just the anthology aspect of it. People are, you know, more prone to pick it up. Well, I was to check out. I don't know. You know, I'm going to try to limit how much I slam, you know, Marvel and DC, but you know, they're raising the prices, cutting back page count. You're not getting much bang for your buck. You know, for 3.99. I mean, it's it's an odd 
comment to hear, but I've been hearing it all day, is people are coming and going, this, you know, usually comments only take me five minutes. This took me 20 minutes, yeah. you know, and then I read oh, it yeah. again. Like I get the people sound so surprised. They're like, oh, this is like a magazine. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole bunch of magazine stuff in the back. There's like cosplay and there's actually, you know, every issue we're trying to feature, you know, we want to talk to other creators who have made it in Creator Owned. So we have a Neil Gaiman, you know, interview about Creator Owned. And, the big thing for me is, um, as a retailer, I've always heard the old guards like, oh, anthologies don't sell. You, they don't sell. Not an anthology, though. That's the whole thing. It's, you know, that's well, that's the thing. It's like anthologies, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, because I, I personally love them, but, you know, in this market and economy today, it's like you don't really want to spend like eight, nine dollars well, to yeah. pay for, yeah. you know, four or five different stories. And, you know, right. I think just having the two, you know, two stories with additional content works out good. Yeah. Well, Dark Horse Presents present. is Well, Dark Horse Presents, but that's what, like that's six? Eight, or is it eight? Is it eight bucks. Eight bucks. But and, it's, you know. it's got a chunk of, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that's that's probably like the highest, like that's the peak of what you're going to be able to sell an anthology yeah. from. Well, customers get scared because they're like, you buy an album, you pay 12 bucks and get one song that you liked. And it's kind of the same thing with anthologies. Yeah. You pay right. like 15 to $20 yeah. for this huge, you know, chunk of thing. And then uh -huh. you're like, I only like 10 pages out of 200. That yeah. sucks, you know? Yeah. So it's a, the way I feel about uh, Creator on Heroes is whether it's an anthology or not, doesn't matter. There's a lot of bang for the buck. Like, yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. is yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, even if you don't like the comics, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of other material in there, yeah. you know? And that's yeah. what we're trying to keep up. It's going to be changing all yeah. the time. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, these guys are only going to get harassed for how many more months? About I two have more? one more to do. You have one more? <laughs> well, I mean, issue one just came out, so we have three more issues yeah. on yeah. stands. But yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. drawing issue, you know. And then there, another art team will come on. And I mean, the next story I'm doing is a Western. It's a Western horror. So, I mean, the tone is completely going to change. So it's it's kind of the thing. If you don't like it now, you know, wait, <laughs> wait 10 minutes, yeah. you know, because yeah. it'll constantly be changing. I have people come up to my table because I've had stuff running in Dark Horse mm -hmm. Presents. Yeah. And they're literally like, is it okay if I wait till it's collected? Yeah. Like, asking my permission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, of course. Because you know, they don't want to pay eight bucks for yeah. eight pages. Oh, like, snidely and no. Yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah, no. Get out of here. I, I understand. I mean, yeah. comics are expensive. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, when I first got into comics, I was going every Wednesday, coming home with a giant stack, and then finally realized I wasn't reading, like, half of it. Yeah, and, then, and it was costing like and 70 it was costing, bucks. Yeah, it really was. It was and then once, yeah, it's like being a freelancer, it's like, well, I don't have money to pay, you know. Yeah, we only 70 to 100 bucks a week for comics. We can so. make them, but we can't yeah. afford to read them. But does everybody know, just out of curiosity, does everybody know the difference between, you know, sort of Marvel DC and creator owned? You know, what the difference is? When any of us do jobs for Marvel or DC, you know, we get paid and we get a lot of exposure and people, you know, read the stuff, but we don't own anything. Yeah. Except, you know, sometimes a royalty on the specific mm -hmm. book. And we're limited doing. rights to the artwork. Yeah. Yeah. As far as exactly. the art back. So. Yeah. But with this stuff, you know, we own everything. You know, everyone, everybody has equal shares. Yeah. Well, Kevin does own a film. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, he's like, no, what? I Jimmy uh, <laughs> didn't give me any rights. It's an opportunity for creators, so, you know, now we can do what we want with this stuff. We can put out our own trades if somebody wants to make a movie or whatever. We, but, we, you know, we're not just captive. It's not just work for hire. So now, it's, now a, it's big, great. a big difference. I love doing the independent stuff along because I do a lot of DC and Marvel stuff too. But it's nice because it's like it's if you're a director in Hollywood, like you know Soderbergh or somebody, you do the big budget 
kind of blockbuster stuff that you know you have fun with and it pays you well but then it allows me to you know spend a couple of months working on this stuff i don't get any money while i'm drawing it but the ownership of it so yeah and there's you know, it's having faith it's all in yourself mine. yeah you know you yeah. have faith that like okay you've you know you're working on what a decade of drawing comics yeah now? yeah so it's like you've got like you know i've put this much into this business so yeah i'm going to do this book for free right now on the faith that i've built this audience and i'm building a product that i believe in but yeah that's that's the nice thing yeah, yeah. it's like i have an, enough of a name now where it's like that will bring attention to the book so um, and and the thing with the, this kind of stuff too with creator owned is i mean i love superheroes oh yeah i have a room yeah. full of marvel mm-hmm. you know toys and comics and i you know i love the stuff but I also like science fiction and oh, dramas yeah. and Oh, yeah, that's uh, especially like that. with like the Trigger Girl story that I mean Jimmy yeah. and I actually came up with it like back in two thousand five we started working on it and then just got busy with other things. But Jimmy and I have done like this and Beautiful Killer and New West and each of those stories it's just been us talking like, Well this would be fun. What a you know, did yeah. a story like this and that's so great creatively just being able to like sit yeah. down, come up with a story oh. and make it I mean, rather imagine? than, you know, oh editorial. Like yeah, there's you know, DC and Marvel, they'd be like, well, oh, she should be more like this, and oh. like you would have met. Yeah, well, that's the nothing. thing. I don't think people realize. I mean, part of when you take on a job at Marvel and DC is you are you are very much working for them, yeah. and they, you know, a lot of times micromanage what you do, and, and not. I mean, that's fine. Well, especially you know? as a writer, I can't imagine because usually by the time it yeah. gets to the art, I've been lucky enough to work with ed- editors who trust me and know my style. So, and great writers. So it's like I just yeah. have fun with it and draw. But it's like I've heard, you know. Tons of horror stories from you know. Yeah. Oh, my Marvel! I mean, like my, my last sin. My <laughs> yeah, last Marvel. Stuff. I'll tell you my last Marvel story because it was the last. I mean, I walked, so they're not gonna be hiring me anytime soon. Anyway, <laughs> just because I'm always talking shit. I did a Hulk story for them. They actually asked me to retell the Fantastic Four number twelve when the Hulk meets. Oh yeah. So I was like, yeah, great. Yeah, I'll do yeah. a modern retelling of that. Yeah. And, da-da. and I do the whole thing. And I'm just you know, it's pretty much based on that. And um, they came back and they go, it's fine, but. We really think the Hulk should turn himself in at the end. <laughs> and I literally was like, what, the, what are you talking about? The Hulk turn himself in? You know, Hulk, sorry. You know, <laughs> he just doesn't do that. He just doesn't do it. And I literally, so I just, I wound up just saying no. And, you know, really fun part, they wrote it for me. So there's a comic there with my name and somebody else's writing on it. I know people who can roll with those punches, but, you know, like for something like this, if I walked up to Marvel or DC and said, I want to do a post-apocalyptic muscle car story, I'd be like, what? Why? Nobody has costumes. Nobody, yeah, you know, they, you don't just, have fun doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. So, that's, that's the nature of the thing. That's the thing you understand, like doing what you do, doing freelance is that you take these gigs knowing that I understand that they're going to pay me enough that I should be okay with not owning anything. And if I'm not okay with that, then I don't take the job. Yeah, and I just did Batman. You know, I, I still I'll do Batman oh, yeah. anytime they yeah. call and ask me to do Batman. Yeah. I'll do it because he's just he's a great character to play with. But you know, there's just a different thing when you can just the world really opens up when you're yeah. you know right out of college. I was an animator at Disney for ten years, and I mean that was a pretty time-consuming job. But in my free time, I would just you know draw stuff for fun, and I slowly got in because I, I wasn't even into comics up until the early 90s and when I started getting into comics I would just draw comic stuff for fun and that's and you know it's like now it's like my you know Marvel DC works like working at Disney it's like fairly steady income and you know it pays my bills and then you know doing this stuff it's like the stuff I do for fun 
Um, what I was uh, kind of interested in is the packaging of it and the um, why it's called Creator on Heroes. Because um, as a retailer, what I've noticed is most of the things that creators own aren't heroes and not you know, superheroes right. or whatnot. Well, it really is. It's double meaning. You know, because well, the well, the, the creators, <laughs> all these guys, anybody who does create their own, you know. It, actually, I'll tell you the exact where the title came from. Because we kept thinking, of, you know, we're trying to think of something, and all me and Jimmy were like, please, no tales of anything. Tales, you know, I just, I can't stand it anymore. You know, on Twitter, you do the Follow Fridays. And one day I was just trying to think of a theme and I went creator owned heroes and I did Jimmy and Justin and Jill Thompson and you know just everybody I know that does creator owned books that I could fit in tweet and then five minutes later I get an email from Jimmy just saying you just titled it idiot you know <laughs> something like that and I was like oh yeah. okay but I'll tell you I have never gotten a harder time for a title or for, a, for any book in my life the last year we have gotten, taken so much crap for this so the fact that it's getting such a good reaction is really, oh, yeah. it's just gratifying. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, one, I didn't think it was that title or format. It's that bold. Yeah, it's thought, just different. It's I thought just it would change. kind of get ignored and we ended up being fairly divisive. Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we, we, was, yeah, yeah, like I had people coming up to the table like, yeah, that book, and, you know, have you heard that thing? And I was like, yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> oh, oh, well, yeah, well, I just wasn't, used to like I wasn't talking about you yeah and people come up and a lot of it because of the title she's like you calling yourself heroes I'm like or the characters I don't care it's just the title and honestly again I wanted to put creator on because I had that I mean guys like Warren Ellis he you know he said it in public so I'm sure you won't mind he's just like that's like calling corn-fed beef corn-fed beef and I was like <laughs> No, it's like calling it corn-fed heroes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and, and what it's about is just making the conversation, bringing creator own the term to the forefront, so that people will know what it is and talk about it, know the difference. Well, I just thought it was interesting too. Like, yeah, as soon as I got to the cons, people were like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I, had, I was like getting attacked at cons. Yeah. I was like, hey, it's just a comic, you know. And then the thing I didn't get was we, and this was a total accident. It came out the same day as the first issue of Before Watchmen. Oh, yeah. So I had people tweeting me all day going, I didn't buy Before Watchmen. I bought Creator of Heroes to prove a point. I'm like... And Phil's just sitting there I'm going, like, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it was... Amanda's it, doing one. It was really funny because it's like the, the irony because I'm coloring Darwin Cook's uh, Minutemen series for DC and... But it's not a... But that's... Yeah, that's my job. It's like, I don't have the luxury of turning anything down, so it's like... Well, and people think it has to be a war and they think it has yeah. to be this us-against-them thing and whoever us decides that's, to be. Yeah. And it's not. It's We're making comics. Right? Well, that was the yeah. whole thing. I didn't get why I mean, why everybody was so angry about it. <laughs> but that's what was, was like, so funny. Just yeah. ignore it. It's like every book I was working on, it seemed like people were like, you know, lining up the battle lines and it's just like... <laughs> and I, there's no battle lines. I mean, you know, it, honestly, I think the scary... I, love, I keep on referring to Twitter, but that's where we get most of our oh, yeah. comments, are the people who the first day it came out go, this is so great, I don't know how they're going to keep it up. And I was just like, oh, God. Because it is a, it's a lot of content. Yeah. I'm excited by that start, because well, even though I'm not in it as of issue five, that's an awesome place to be, because you guys have to reinvent the wheel all the time, and that keeps things exciting, and yeah. keeps people guessing, and you know, yeah. keeps you guys having, it keeps, you know, as far as being the... Jimmy uh, Palmiotti, Justin Gray, and Steve Niles show for a while. You know, it's like yeah, it keeps you guys great. like, what do we got to do to yeah. 
you know. And that's the thing. I mean, I'm hoping, you know, after a year or so, because like I said, we're all working, you know, we're hopefully going to get paid on the back end on this. And, you know, hopefully eventually it'll make enough money that we'll be able to bring in a third creator. You oh, know, yeah. You know, or somebody would switch out or, you know, something like that. So it won't always just be the two of us, because mm-hmm. I think that was also the trigger point for a lot of people. Everybody oh, thought yeah. me and Jimmy were saying, we're the goddamn here. Yeah. Oh. And uh, another panel that I hosted was... Cover Me Hellboy, and that featured uh, Mike Mignola, creator of Hellboy, Becky Cloonan, uh, amazing artist, and uh, Francesco Francavilla, and Dave Johnson. It was really incredible. I mean, the star power in that room was uh, just blinding. Dave Johnson, in particular, uh, incredibly talented uh, cover artist, one of the most talented cover artists in the industry, I think. You remember the uh, the covers he did with uh, Ruckus Run on Detective Comics? Oh, yeah. That was amazing stuff. Yeah. That was yeah. that was I think the first time um, growing up that I was really truly wowed by the design and colors that were going into uh, comic book covers. He did a lot of good stuff for Vertigo. You know, he did the Hundred Bullets, and you know, he did uh, Superman Red Sun. He came mm-hmm. up with the whole thing of making him propaganda and yeah. everything. I mean, he did most of the interiors for Superman Red Sun as well, but but the the covers being propaganda posters that was all him. That was awesome. He also does a, a blog that's a, hasn't been updated in a while now, unfortunately, but a blog that's a critique of all the comic covers that come out um, every week. He picks the worst and the best <laughs> and isn't afraid to criticize himself as well. Uh, and what's neat about it is that he's so well-respected that most everybody takes it in stride. They're like, oh, man, thank you so much for like you know chewing me out. This is really yeah. important. Or they can just think he was drunk when he did it because he did um, actually create Drink and Draw. He was the founder. So. Wait. Of the concept of yeah. drink and draw, yeah, the drink and draw. That's R- him. Really? Yeah, seriously. Shit. <laughs> I just assumed people had been doing that since, like, you know, the beat Beer. poets. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, so here's some clips from that panel, and uh, then uh, we'll cut away to a song. Yeah. So, Mike, having other artists work on the covers of Hellboy, what is it you go for as an art director? What are you looking for from these people, or do you just love their work and say, "Go for it, guys"? Well, that's it. I mean, it's, it's kind of like. Um, what you always hear about movies that you know nine tenths of the work is done when you cast the right people we get cover artists whose work we know and we have some idea what kind of work they do and then the idea is to let them do what they do it sounds like a real simple idea except it's not what happens in most cases they, you'll hire an artist and go now can you draw like this guy or you know so mostly the people we're working with like Dave who's the, the regular artist on the BPRD series it's giving him a vague idea, sometimes probably too vague an idea about what goes on in that comic, and then just say, do it, do what you do. And then of course he sends in sketches and then we dissect the shit out of it and it's a big fucking nightmare for everybody. My thing is just to, to stay out of the way unless things go you know, radically wrong. Covers are real tricky these days because we don't want to give away what's really going on in the book because these things are solicited so early if you're building up to some big surprise moment it's kind of squashed when the cover everybody's seen what's on the cover you know five issues down the road essentially you're tasked with the work of creating a a brilliant work of art inspired by what's inside but not really dictated by what's inside yeah and that's why i don't we don't have those kind of superhero kind of covers that show an actual scene from the book usually it's something really symbolic you know the the covers becky did there was this kind of mushroom vampire thing so it's like well do something kind of cool that sort of says vampires and play up mushrooms <laughs> i actually look at a lot of photo reference of mushrooms because i realized i never had really drawn a mushroom before but it, it, they're great, I didn't know how to draw it. And, <laughs> and there hadn't been a lot of mushroom covers for us. So you kind of go, well, that defines this run is mushrooms. 
I took a lot of mushrooms when I was doing my covers. <laughs> and you can tell by a lot of the covers you've done. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to cover design, the process is considerably more different than, uh, than working on interior panels. It's more filmic, shot for shot, and with covers you do have to like, look at it as a standalone piece, work, as you said, like, a bit more representational. So for each of you, descending from Mike down to Dave, what's your process for designing a cover? Like, How many thumbnails do you go through? I never do one really good thumbnail. Uh, again, nobody has to approve mine. So I start with an idea, and then it, you, you see a lot of it in the sketchbook sections. There'll be like a cover sketch, and then there'll be 32 other drawings all around it. As I And then the cover I do bears no resemblance to any of it. Because once I start working, and then it's just like, well, that didn't work. I'll take that out, and I'll add this. And, and I just beat on the thing until I either throw it away or and start again, or somehow something comes out. Unlike Richard Corbin, who will send in two cover sketches. It's always exactly two. They're almost completely finished covers. So you just pick which one, and then he d he just copies it. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that guy's but incredible. You, Becky. My problem is, I guess, it, I feel like covers for me and like illustration in general is kind of laborious. Not stressful, but like there's more, not anxiety. Maybe it is a little anxiety. I don't know. Um, like the idea of putting all everything that you want to say into like one image and having that image be graphically nice and that's going to pop off the stands you know represent what the comic is about so they sent me the scripts for everything so i got to read the book and know what it was about and then i sent in four completely different cover sketches and then i send those four in and then i guess they send it to you and then i get notes back on it and they say well you know we like the first one but could you like reverse it or could you you know, usually there's like a process of back and forth for a little bit. They pick this, the cover sketch you like least. Yeah, I'm or like... Or they pick the one you like most and say, but you, could you make it more like this? Or can you take half of this and stick it onto that? Well, it's, it's always funny because I'm always like, this is, you know, I like cover B the best, you know, my second sketch. And then I'm like, but they'll probably choose C because it's the one that I don't like the most. And for some reason, it always ends up being, no matter what I'm working on, like any kind of illustration, it's always the one that you're like, you, you didn't really think was going to be the one that they picked. I don't mean any maybe too many covers because I'm, I'm doing uh, several covers at Dynamite so and covers at Marvel. Uh, each publisher has a different way to deal with covers. With Dynamite, it's the easier way. I usually send in the sketch and it gets approved within an hour and I'm good to go, you know? I don't give many options. Unless they require me to do more than an option, I usually try to give what is the final cover right away. If uh, some license is involved, you you know need to be approved by license uh, the the licensor. So more people gets involved, the more tricky it gets because you have to make everybody happy. But um, usually, I try to avoid uh, spoilers, like Mike was saying, because you know you don't want to give anything away. People need to pick up the book and read it, but still need to be iconic enough to grab the attention. You know. You, step in the store there's so many covers on the shelf so but yeah pretty much i usually i do one sketch with marvel dc they ask me to do three four sketches and then you know you you find that you can draw captain america showing the shoulder it need to be always face front you know several things that you learn along the way don't do the same mistake twice so next time it get easier to do the cover. The thing is, uh, like uh, in some cases, I get the synopsis. So I like for the cover to be at least matching the story inside. With Diamond, sometimes I miss it to get that information, what the book is about. So I just try to go standard. I remember this Kato cover. Uh, since we were coming out of Iran where there were Nazi, 
So I throw this Nazi submarine on the cover and Nazi officers. Uh, the book was about jets in New Orleans. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, so can I at least, you know, the solicitation tags get the, you know, some idea what the story is about? Yeah, I tend to, before I start working for uh, Mike, uh, I've gotten to the point where I would just tell the editor, it's like, look, I'll give you one sketch. You know, I think about 20 sketches in my head, and I usually pick the best one that I like in my head, and then I do that, and then I send it off. And if they completely hate it, then I'll do another one. But normally I don't like to give them the option to pick the weaker one, because a lot of times editors will pick the, the worst one design-wise, so I try to eliminate as much option out of their hands as possible. And a lot of times I, I don't even read the scripts anymore as much as I can. I just call up the editor and I said, well, or I talk to the writer and I said, well, what are you trying to get across in the cover? You know, I just want to know what the meat and potatoes is, what they want to get across, and if there's any reference for it. And then I start going from there. And and then if I don't come up with an idea, then I go, okay, well, maybe we need more information. Maybe I'm, something, I'm missing something. But I got used to working that way on 100 Bullets because we were so far ahead of the game that Brian Azzarello hadn't even started writing the story yet. So a lot of those later covers, you know, it was based on just a, an idea of what he was going to get around to writing. We had already been down the road so long, like I already knew all the main characters, so it was easier to come up with symbology. Unfortunately, Hellboy universe, there's usually a creature involved that hadn't been designed yet, and I'm just like, well, you know, I'm pulling nothing out of the air, and it's like I need something to, to go for them, you know, so. It's been more challenging working on these and, than like a Deadpool or... Yeah, you know. we've got kind of a lot of hands involved because yeah. the, we've got the writer who wants one thing, the editor and I just trying to come up with melting down what that issue is about. We want something that's a symbolic cover. Yeah, I tend to think like for a week about something and then realize I've got like a less than a day to do it. And by that point, I'm like, then the gears start shifting more and more and more graphic. And that's where some of the most graphic covers I've done have come from, basically, because of deadline pressure. But that's where some of my best covers have come from. So it all started with me with 100 Bullets when I had to turn in a... It was supposed to be a painted face. I was going to do it like uh, Leroy Neiman. And I realized it took him a lifetime to get to that way of painting. Because he, he paints very blotchy and tons of colors. And I said, hey, I can do that, you know. And so I waited till the last minute. And then I sat down to do it. It was a guy's face. And I realized, yeah, I don't, I don't know the first thing about how to do this kind of style and I was like I was freaking out and the FedEx was due uh, the next day and I went down to the office supply store and got a rubber stamp kit and I made the, the word loser and I just took a face and just rubber stamped the word loser and eventually it turned into a face and I just shipped it off and I thought I was going to get fired but it was, <laughs> it was the one cover that Karen Berger actually called me and was just kissing my ass up and down and I was like oh yeah I could I'll just do this more you know so I mean I used to paint all the time and now I'm just like ah, painting's too hard I'd rather go graphic so and I don't function well with deadlines so I, I tend to push my own stuff so far down the line that it gives me a chance to do a cover five times because I'll just the last five years I've done so many versions of covers trying to get the perfect cover I'm just I'm a terrible cover artist and I'm the worst editor of my own stuff so uh, yeah I've got just drawers full of half finished covers usually I'll, I'll do it two or three times finally finish a version 
two days later, I look at the unfinished versions and I go, wow, every one of these is better than the one I finished. Back in the old DC days, they would do the cover and then the writer and artist would have to figure it out from there. And uh, I just agreed to start doing Fantastic Four covers. And I talked to my editor just before I came out here and I said, what about in between story arcs if I were to just draw a cover and then yeah, you were, the interior you were, guys yeah. had to have to figure it out. So he's down for it. So, you know, that's cool. So we're going to see where that goes. One of the things we ran into with other people doing covers is that people were trying to do my covers. And it's like, no, that's my cover. Yeah. You don't need to do the same kind of. But it's so tough. I mean, that's the problem with working on a Hellboy book is, you know, it's not like Superman where Superman is basically the town slut or Batman's the town slut. Everybody's been on Batman. Oh. You come on. Well, I'm serious. But you come on Mike's <laughs> book and Mike is it's Mike's book. And, and when you're drawing his characters, it's real easy to want but to draw it like Mike draws now it. As more people have done the stuff. It's, it's, it's getting easier. there. But still, you're kind of like the alpha. And it almost as you're drawing, it almost like, doesn't seem right if it doesn't look like your stuff. You know, so well, it's, it's kind of like. I feel like now there's so many more cover artists is, is different from the interior artists, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to make, like, the art matches the feel of the book. Like, even though it's so different from the interiors, you want to make sure that the cover reflects the feeling and the integrity. And like Hellboy with the universe, when it's Hellboy and BPRD, you want to make sure it's all tied together. So as a cover artist, I'm more concerned with, like, the feel of it and making sure it feels like it's in the same universe as less stylistically and more like, how am I going to design this cover? And, the imagery on it and well I mean you had an interesting one because you had none of the main characters yeah it was just so you just had to do this iconic kind of horror image yeah. which is what I'd love to do as we kill off more and more of our characters it's all just regular guys the emphasis on the covers is come up with a cool image and you don't have to trip over you know, having to put Superman or Hellboy or Batman or somebody on the cover. So we're just looking at really cool images and letting the logo be the thing that says what this book is. So hopefully that's liberating. It's usually on a first cover, I get this a lot from editors, like we need to set it up. Like I'm, I've just agreed to do a, quite a few uh, team books, which normally I avoid. And they're like, well, you know, on the first cover, we kind of need to show who the team is. But then after that, because team book, covers are usually the worst designed yeah. I mean everything's yeah. already oh, yeah. been done it's been done to a million times and you end up you know hey everybody's bursting yeah. out coming at you and I'm like I don't you see I, I just want a cool picture and I can overrule marketing so well, yeah that's kind of yeah. nice and so far everything is sold I mean it might not you know it, it, all our trade paperbacks are in the black yeah so it, it's a nice feeling it's like even yeah. if one doesn't sell it's like well but most of them did so you guys dark horse can eat the one that didn't sell um we sold a you know john severin western so you know my feeling is they'll let me do what i want until yeah. i really really screw up all right let's cut it some music this is a track by swamp thing from the grindhouse ep his uh debut record actually it's from hand solo records and uh though this came out in june 2012 this track's called 2010 Actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. 
unsuspected revelations that will terrify you yeah. with their brutal reality. When I sit and write fiction with a pad and a pen, it's hard to fathom what'll happen in 2010. Spaceships from other planets that the aliens sent. Plan 9 from outer space, the invasion begins. Rock a tinfoil hat or the Bella Lugosi. Get with Ed Wood and we'll split in the proceeds. Radio waves and lasers gave me the nosebleeds. Cities and flames, radiation and no trees. We was all moving sidewalks, not about iPods. Magnetic fuel for the switch into your mind's gone. It's all good, we got phones as thin as nylon. But Voss wants to flow with new kicks like M. Bison. The shit we got now is corny in stores. I want to cop X-ray specs like Jordy LaForge. I need a robot to bring me a clean Miller draft. Cause we the children of the future like the Steve Miller band. We come equipped, set to face the true test. Laser proof vest, yes, power lace shoes, check. Scientists cloning saber tooth pets. Aliens among us, so I'm making new friends. Skip the disc man, hit him with an implant. Rip jams to your brain stem with a print scan. We got rocket ships built out of tin cans. And robots looking like the Michelin man. Witnessing the dawn of a nuclear age. Tripping off the thought of what the future contains. Zooming past Jupiter's rings. When I was a youth, I used to dream about hover cars above the stars. Another planet fade away. Teleportation on hoverboards is how I get away. My cellular phone is how I would travel from day to day. Back to the program. Instead of being stuck in traffic, transit will be floating. Fuck a token. And hand scanners is the way to pay your bills off. And hand cannons turn the lasers, get your shield on. Uh, astronauts are getting hassled lots. And now the space is like the Wild West blasting off. Plus, I crashed my stock Apple Macintosh and blew a bundle trying to terraform the planet off. Taking Federation shuttles to my techno loft. Still better off than infected moms. I'm just chilling at my sky pad in a fresh toga. Watching sunsets with my favorite sex no robot. Updated formulas, natural born warriors. Hey, Nostradamus, you were wrong, but thanks for warning us. We're in the space age. Fuck a MySpace page. The internet is so dose, meal nueve. You think your cars fly? My car flies. I take bizarre rides to the moon's dark side. The high tech will take the next great steps. Future so clear, I'm wearing X-ray specs. Witnessing the dawn of a nuclear age. Tripping off the thought of what the future contains. Zooming past Jupiter's rings. Humans on computers is strange. Witnessing the dawn of a nuclear age. Tripping off the thought of what the future contains. Zooming past Jupiter's rings. Humans on computers is strange. So now we're going to play uh, some excerpts from the Fable panel. In fact, we're going to play most of the Fable panel because uh, Bill Willingham is an incredible talker. And man, no matter what you ask him, it might not make any sense to get the story that you get, but you will not regret what you get. Uh, so here it comes back to it, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, he remembers where he where he came from. But yes. uh, when he wants to tell a story, damn it, he'll tell it. 
So uh, get ready for one of the best panels you've ever heard. Welcome everyone who's just joined us. Thank you for attending. This is the Fables panel. Sitting to my left is Bill Willingham. Yeah! So, and, and for everybody here who missed it, there, there is going to be a substantial Fables announcement here, actually, at here for the first time, so. Like you yeah. said, this is D San Diego worthy here, guys. Gird your loins. Woo! Gird them. Wouldn't you like to drop this bombshell on everybody? You wanna hold you out wanna, to the end? Let's do it now, because okay. otherwise we'll, you'll just be asking, when do you wanna do that? Next year, we are doing a Fables dedicated convention in Rochester, Minnesota. It's actually not just Fables, it's called Fable Town and Beyond is what we're calling it. The official word is a comic convention celebrating the mythic fiction movement in comic art and story. And mythic fiction is a name that we cobbled together. Actually, uh, Kurt Busiek imposed this name on us because if Kurt Busiek doesn't get his way, he gets mean and, and he hires people to, <laughs> to uh, take out your kneecaps. So we're trying to come up, the kind of comics where, you know, you can have talking ducks and cows and still it'd be a serious uh, story, uh, like Fables. Uh, I think the, this movement in comics probably got a really good start with Sandman. Books that are coming out now, The Unwritten, uh, Kill Shakespeare, Mice Templar, Mouse Guard, all of those kinds of not superheroes, characters from literature, characters from fables and folklore, that kind of stuff. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen would be a good example, although do not, do not, do not <laughs> assume from that that we're getting Alan Moore out to this thing. Uh, I'd love to, but some of the people we do have uh, locked into this so far, Mark Buckingham will be over here as the guest of honor. I will, I will be there as your host. Some of the confirmed guests are uh, Chris Roberson, who's done this wonderful book, Memorial, recently. Uh, Matt Sturgis from House of Mystery. Peter Gross and Mike Carey from The Unwritten. Brian Glass, so far from Mice Templar. I think Mike Oming has said he's gonna try and make it. I'm not sure if he's, he's confirmed yet. And five minutes ago before, our, uh, well, five minutes before I showed up, uh, David Peterson from Mouse Guard confirmed that he will be making it. And we've got many, many more guests to be announced. It will take place March 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in Rochester, Minnesota, which is in the middle of nowhere. I was going to ask, why, why Rochester? Because Rochester, as everyone knows, is uh, the home of the Mayo Clinic. And the friend I have helping me with this convention has lots of friends in the Mayo Clinic, and the, they're giving us this uh, brand new modern Civic Center auditorium -y thing uh, that they have for the community, and they're letting us use it for free because of the old boy network, where if you live in Rochester for all your life, you know everyone and, and all that. So we're, the, the only way to be able to afford something like this <laughs> is, to, is to make those kinds of deals. There, there are many more details to, to uh, be announced. If you have specific questions during the question time, ask and I'll, uh, I'll give you an answer. But it's, it's gonna be wonderful. Uh, the one thing that we're going to try and guarantee is that this will be the, the most artist and, and writer uh, available convention ever. Meaning that you do not have to stand on long lines. To get, we, we're doing some interesting things where uh, you will be able to have lots of personal or, or small group one-on-one -on -one time uh, with each of the guests, and uh, uh, it should be a fine thing. So that's it. That's my announcement. That is very cool. Now, setting aside a convention for, uh, for that specific branch of, of writing, is it, uh, is it limited to, to comics, or is it a broader scope? We're going to kind of limit it to comics only because 
if you open it up to the broader scope, you open it up to something huge and we don't want. <laughs> yeah. D years down the road, if, if we continue doing it, you bet. Uh, but right now we wanted to kind of limit just how much we're trying to bite off the first time out of the gate. Anyone who would willingly do a, a convention of any kind has to be insane because it's, it's just, you know, a monumental thing to pull off. So, of course, not having done career-wrecking things in, in my career for at least 10 years, and I used to do it every two years or so, uh, I thought, well, hold a convention. That'll probably destroy your career for the near future. Um, <laughs> so we're going to try it. So are you the mastermind behind Fabletown and Beyond, like your, your idea? Yes and no. Um, the fans of Sandman got together one year about, God, it may have been like 10 or 12 years ago, at the height of Sandman, hmm. and did a Sandman-specific convention, and they got Neil Gaiman to show up for it, and a few other people, and then DC sent some people, and it turned out to be this wonderful thing. Uh, so there was this uh, Fable Town board where the fans tried to get a similar thing together. So they started up and say, we should do this, and, and we'll get Bill and Bucky to this. But the problem is, is I think one of these fan-sponsored things only really can happen if someone steps up and becomes the leader. And there was no, they kept deferring to each other, and they would say, okay, let's, I was living in Vegas at the time, and I was trying to stay out of it. I was like, okay, this is their thing, let's stay out until they request us to interfere. They say, well, let's have it in Vegas, because Bill lives in Vegas, and then we can fly Mark in. And then the next person would say, that's great, Vegas is the perfect thing, or, and then they would say, you know, whatever the town they were from, because I know a good hotel in this town. And so the next person would say, okay, so Vegas, or Montreal, or whatever, or, and, and, the, and the conversation never ended. It, just, it would just circle around until they would always like list three things. So Vegas would get taken out because the last three things listed were this. And then someone else would add. And we kept dropping some. And then eventually someone would say, hey, remember Vegas? That was a good idea. And then it would just circle around. <laughs> and they did this for about a year and a half. It was flattering and it, it was fun to watch in the sense that no one is going to come up, step up and actually make decisions here. They all wanted it desperately, but no one became the, the leader. So the, the conversation waned, but it kind of stuck in my head for a while. And so that would be a fun thing to do, a, a kind of not just fable specific, but just that, that kind of thing where its own little corner of the comics universe and apparently it's lingered long enough to where I finally said, let's do it. That's really, really, really exciting. I mean, like having um, uh, the discussions that'll be able to be had in, in panels and everything else with, with that group of people together in one place is uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward really to the exciting. programming. It's not the case here, but at big shows like San Diego where every panel is either a commercial for a movie or a TV show or a commercial for this is our big company, these are our comics, buy them. Uh, but they're all infomercials now. They're all yeah. buy our stuff. And the panels and programming about talking about specific things uh, kind of goes by the wayside. So our, our first rule was no publishers get to do panels. If you're a small publisher and you also happen to be an artist, then you can be on a panel, but no publisher panels. All our programming will be about stuff, conversations about the state of the art or what have you. Uh, hopefully a, a fun three-day conversation out in the middle of nowhere. And if we have winter again, we didn't have winter last year, but if we have winter again like normal, March is usually real snowy, <laughs> uh, especially in Rochester. I mean, we're talking 10 degrees below zero snowy. But the nice thing about Rochester because of that is that the entire city 
you can get anywhere, either underground or through skyways and stuff. So between our hotel and the Civic Center, we have all these like skyways and undergrounds uh, to travel between the two, the two areas of events. And we're setting up things like scavenger hunts between so that, so that we'll have everyone like wandering the warrens of this underground <laughs> super city, uh, you know, looking for specific things or whatever. I'm not sure how we're going to, uh, maybe the program book will have like a Fable Town passport that you got to get them all stamped to get whatever great thing, but... Uh, An immersive uh, experience. But yes. That's awesome. Yes. If, if we have a good winner, this entire thing will take place in one of these like end of civilization kind of science fiction <laughs> settings where and they you do you the Mayo Clinic I don't know if you know is like a, it's like the biggest hospital in the world or whatever so it's not one building it's like a billion of them and they're all linked by this but down there you find you know restaurants and stores and theme parks and things that only exist uh, under that you would never suspect were there <laughs> if you didn't go and, uh, and so we're incorporating all of that into this. It's, it's going to be fun. Or it's going to be a disaster and we'll lose people <laughs> forever. But it'll be an adventure. It, w- it will be like one of those <laughs> Hamlin things where, where 300 people disappear and they're never seen from again. And, and, and I'll do a little jail time, but there'll be some fun legends. You know, it'll be great. It'll be great. Years later, you'll discover their civilization. Yes. Oh, I'm sure that there are lost civilizations down there somewhere being discovered by by action scientists right now. Um, so anyway, yeah, let's let's talk about um, fables a bit and things that are uh, things that are cooking with fables. I hear tell that you guys are uh, developing a video game with Telltale. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when we say you guys are developing a video game, meaning people that actually have skills and know what they're doing ah. are, are doing the video game. And from time to time, they ask me questions. And I go, yeah, that's, that sounds like what okay. this character would do. Or, no, that doesn't sound like what this character would do. Except the problem is, is, is we made a deal where, you know, for me, consulting with them, uh, I get some money. And I haven't earned a single dollar of this money they paid me because these guys unlike people that have written like fables television scripts that have no relationship to fables. These guys <laughs> all have read everything and there's never been a thing so far. Uh, Telltale does the, this, this video game or this computer game in chapters. So the first chapter's done and that's gonna launch at some time. And they're working on, uh, the second chapter is almost done and then they're starting the, the preliminary work for the third chapter, that's the way they do it. Well, in the whole first chapter, everything they sent me, I, I, there was nothing I needed to correct. I think I, I caught a typo once. Um, <laughs> nothing I needed to correct. Uh, the second one, the same thing. And, and so I wrote them this, this email. It's like, I'm, I'm so sorry I'm not earning any money here uh, because you guys, you know, obviously really did read and pay attention to the books, which flummoxes me because... We've been trying to get a Fables TV and or movie done for 10 years. And on two different occasions, there's been a pilot written, and they've run them by me for, for my opinion. And, and in each case, my, my answer was, this sounds like a great show, but um, I thought you were going to send me the Fables pilot because this has nothing to do with, you know, change everything. But these guys didn't. For her credit, the first person we tried to get a Fables movie with was... Lisa Henson at Jim Henson Pictures. Oh, wow. And she had read everything. And she and I would have these marathon conversations on the phone, the upshot of which would prove that, yeah, she was not only up to date on the books, but she was, uh, uh, Jeanette Kahn was still part of uh, DC at the time, was feeding her advanced scripts and things like that. 
So this, this woman knew her stuff, and they really wanted to make Fables as a movie, uh, which is why, I guess, Warner TV decided, we can't, we can't have that. We need more, and they snatched it away. But anyway, um, <laughs> the Telltale Games, I know that the first one is going to be wonderful because they had me. Whatever the digital equivalent of turning the pages frantically, they sent me the document. I'm just scrolling, not to, not to do corrections, but just to see what happens next. And I think it's, it's going to be pretty exciting. And it's also going to be in continuity, meaning that this is anything that happens in the game is official. It did indeed happen in, in Fable's history. I think, don't hold me to this, but I think the timeline is this is what happened about a month before the very first panel of Fable's where Jack runs into the office all distraught. This is the one calendar month before that, all of the stuff that took place before we, we started the, the official series. So that's, yeah. that's really exciting for, for context. Exciting. Yeah, for, for context for everybody here about uh, Telltale Games, they, uh, they do incredible um, interactive storytelling, really, is more than it's not, uh, it's not exactly a Halo or Gears of War experience. It's um, like they do a Walking Dead title um, that is an official Walking Dead canon, and it actually is a side story. It doesn't contain any of the primary characters from the comics, but uh, Kirkman's very involved with it, and um, honestly, it's one of the most incredible pieces of interactive storytelling I've ever seen. So, Until the Fables game comes out. Right. <laughs> so um, when I heard they were doing a Fables game, I was ecstatic because it's in very good hands, as you can tell. It is. It is in good hands. And it is. The, I don't know a lot about computer games. I'm, I'm not uh, instinctively that kind of fellow. But it, it's, it's got punch em up moments, but it's not just that. I know there's mysteries you have to solve and, and character interaction kind of stuff you have to do. And I have no idea if I'm talking out of turn. I don't know how much of that is still secret. but. That generally, it's a lot of a so lot of good you're not fun supposed stuff. Supposed to know, <laughs> yeah. you're not, you don't know. There's an opportunity somewhere in the game where one character can hit another at least once. That's that's all I'm saying. So, what else are we talking about? Well, one thing that I'm curious about, I have I'm a massive fan of the series, and I really like the way that you take these established characters from folklore and kind of turn them on their head a little bit, particularly getting somewhat twisted. And I was curious, are there any characters that you've wanted to twist more than you have? Ooh, that's a good question. And that's a good variation. I, I get the, you know, are there characters you wanted to use but haven't yet type of thing, but, but wanted to twist more than I have. I'm not sure. Uh, the premise going in, the, the rules I set for myself, are that we'd take these public domain characters, and if I use them, whatever story they have first appeared in, like, everyone knows Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, that that story did actually happen. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna go back and say, here's a character you know, but the history you think you know about never really occurred, here's what happened instead. But, with that said, that the story actually happened, are there like new examinations of it I can do? That's fine. And also, because it's set in modern day, the idea is, but this character you think you know, here's what's happened to her since, which has turned her because, like Snow White was this kind of lovely, a little bit too naive, uh, someday my prince will come singing in the woods kind of girl, and then a bunch of terrible, terrible, terrible stuff happened to her. And then her prince did finally save her and everything was okay. But as everyone knows, when you go through a thoroughly disgusting, terrible, traumatic set of circumstances in your life, having some nice guy show up uh, and giving you a little smoochy does not really make everything okay. That the, a lot of that 
weight and 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 baggage just just gets carried along, maybe deferred for a while because oh things are better now. You know the the big tough SWAT guys rescued me from the hostage taker, and for a while you feel wonderful because well the big tough SWAT guy SWAT guys rescued me from the hostage taker, but later on it's like you start to remember all the horrible things that happened before the the, the good guys showed up. So I would ask myself the questions. Okay, considering everything that Snow White, as our example character, went through, uh, what would she be like? And for one thing, I'll bet she would have trouble trusting people because everyone that, for at least a, a long period of time, that she fell into the clutches of just really did her dirty. So she has trust issues. So maybe she becomes a little controlling. Or maybe she does, well, if I can't trust people to take care of me, maybe I better learn to take care of myself. So that is why you get the, the kind of take charge resourceful version of Snow White, who is not someone that you're going to easily flirt with or, or, or get on the, the good side of. She runs her own life and all her barriers are, are up. That's the premise for basically every character. When I had some leeway, like since it started with oral tradition and people change stories as they tell them, uh, there's always a, a hundred different versions of everything, uh, I would use the version that, that worked out most, like the version of uh, Red Riding Hood, where instead of just outright killing, a, in, the, in the story, the hunter did kill the wolf, but he described the way he did it, is like I cut him open, put a bunch of stones in his belly, sewed him up and threw him into the river to drown. Okay, so that happened. How is it then that the big bad wolf is still alive? And I have to think this through. Well, okay, he can do this huff and puff thing. So he's obviously got some kind of, you know, superpower going on. And I worked out, well, maybe he's the son of the North Wind. And he's got these wind generating powers in addition to being a wolf. So drowning isn't going to be a big thing because he can just like generate his own air as long as he needs until what, what I always thought was a fun joke, and I don't think anyone's got it, until he gets past the stones. Just anyway. <laughs> um, so that is a legitimate justification for saying, yes, the entire story that you think you know is true, but this is why he's legitimately still around. So those are the rules I set for myself. And also, can I think of a good reason why, uh, because the Big Bad Wolf was my favorite fairy tale character, I didn't want him as a villain, because of a villain you can use once or twice, but if he's still around like that, you know, third, fourth year in a series, then it's really the story of how all your heroes are incompetent if they can't get <laughs> rid of the villains uh, with any, uh, any finality. I mean, really the story of Batman and the Joker is that the Joker, it's his show. It's like, he's this guy, he's a super criminal that breaks out of Arkham Asylum, kills a bunch of people, Batman captures him, puts him back, the Joker gets to rest up, kind of get a second win, break out of Arkham Asylum, kill more people. That's the real story. And you don't have a really, you know, you begin to wonder, like, granted, okay, Batman's pretty good at getting the Joker, but, but the whole legal system is just terrible at <laughs> and not having bunches of people killed down the road. And I actually got to write a story once where Joker officially thanks Batman, and he says, no, you don't understand our relationship. He's talking to reporters. We're not adversaries. We're partners. My part of the job <laughs> is to get my rest and break out and kill people, and then... You know, when I'm getting overworked or overtired or whatever, Batman, my partner, comes in and says, it's time to, to go back and get your rest again. So it's, it's like we work together. Um, 
But anyway, that's a long way of saying that, you know, you don't want to have ineffective heroes. So I couldn't have Big Bad Wolf as a villain and keep him as long as I wanted to. Uh, so he had to be a good guy. And then, then it was a process of, okay, he really is. And, and, I, and I hope, if nothing else in Fables, we've shown that when he was a Big Bad Wolf, he was a Big Bad Wolf. He was not a good character at all. But he did reform, and I think we legitimately reformed him, and, and there's several ways to, and, and uh, wolves being territorial and stuff. You know, the, the idea of this is the woman I love, and she doesn't want mass murderers, so I guess I've got to make myself into a better person for her. I, th- I think that works as a, as a good motivation. But anyway, that's, that's <laughs> why. Wow, twisting here. See, with Geppetto... <laughs> now we're back. <laughs> I'm, uh, if you haven't read it yet... Geppetto's the adversary, he's the villain. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you haven't gotten that far yet, I mean, come on. Just, it's time. Um, from a kindly old woodcarver to a despotic emperor uh, that has enslaved billions, yet wasn't that far enough for you? I mean, that, that's pretty twisted. Did, did, did you want more? <laughs> it's less that I am dissatisfied with what you've done thus far. And more, I'm just curious if there was a voice in the back of your head saying, no, that's not a good one. No. Slow down. People don't need to see Hansel do that. Yeah, the voice in the back of the head that says, maybe that's going too far and it's too sick and it's too twisted, uh, got shunted over to Jack of Fables, (laughs) wherein my writing partner on that book, uh, Matt Sturgis, and I would bounce ideas off each other. And if we ever got to the point where something scared either of us, like, oh, that might be going too far, that's why we decided to put it in the book. Um, um, yes sleeping with all three of your sisters is bad purposely is maybe going too far so we'll just stop at accidentally sleeping with all three of your your sisters before he knew that they were so so, yeah we had but yeah everything that was like let's let's just go too far uh ended up in jack of fables Um, it shows yeah yeah well our our rules for that one See, I, I told you I had rules for fables. The rules for Jack of Fables, first of all, was the two rules from Seinfeld, which was no hugging and no one learns anything. No one, no one improves as a character. You know, no one gets better. But added to that was this either has to scare one of us, makes us nervous like we're going too far, or we have to get the, the other guy on the phone giggling maniacally at our plans, and, and if we don't get that, if we don't get the, the dare we do this kind of thing, then, then we thought that maybe that wasn't good enough for Jack. Uh, as a result, there were a lot of Fables readers that just, just loathed Jack, which Matt and I would go, yes, yes, it's working, this is great, because if you, if you love this and, and loathe this character, then everything we wanted to do with this character is working fine. Except for occasionally, and this boggles me, some of the people that loathe Jack actually wouldn't buy the, the books, and I didn't understand uh, that as a disconnect to me. Uh, you should, you know, if you're going to loathe the character, get all the books so that you know exactly how bad he is. I mean, some of you only suspect how bad he got before we killed him. Um, but um, Spoiler alert. Um, oh. <laughs> really, it's time. It's time for you to catch up. So, Did I answer your question there? You did. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back with the question and answer portion of the Bill Willingham panel. But uh, first, a little musical interlude. This is Jump on the Fifth, a mashup by the Boot League. This is from an album called Mashup Culture Volume 2, and it combines Walter Murphy's A Fifth of Beethoven, the classic dance jam version of Beethoven's Fifth, 
with House of Pain's Jump Around. That's a sin, I won't ever slack up Don't give it a back up Try and play a role and you're the whole crew will act up Get up, stand up, come, come up, throw your hands up If you got the feeling, jump up, touch the ceiling Monsters of fun fun, someone's fucking drunk Now I'll bust them in the eye, and then I'll take the punks Feeling funky, amps in the trunk And I got more rhymes in this cops that are dunking Donut shop, sure enough I got props From the kids on the hill, plus my mom and my pops I came to get down, I came to get down So get out your seat and jump around Jump around, jump up and get down going to turn the microphone to you guys. The, the rules for these question sessions that I've set for myself is that at least one question today will be a no bullshit. If you ask, I have to answer truthfully. I'm not sure who gets that one. It's going to be kind of random. But one question will, will be at least a legitimate answer. And the rest just could be made up or, or, or nonsense or, or no comment. It's so. the Bill Willingham lottery. Yes. Would you ever consider a Fables tabletop RPG? Would I ever consider a Fables tabletop RPG? Uh, yes, uh, I would. I was in the gaming field long enough to where I'd be very particular. Since I don't know computer games so much, I was prepared to be more lenient there. A tabletop RPG 
paper games uh, is something that's so near and dear to my heart that I suspect I would be despotic about accuracy and all that kind of stuff. So I would pity whoever would try and do that because I would be a terrible person to work with, but I would, I would love that. The problem is, is, is I have partners in the DC vast Time Warner empire, and I doubt they would sign off on such a thing without some way in which it ends up them getting millions and millions and millions of dollars yeah. that they could pretend not to owe me. So I don't know that that's, that's viable in that regard, but I, yeah, I'd love it. I mean, what a, what a great game to play. When I discovered role-playing games, I was in the army, on this nuke base that was in the middle of nowhere uh, in Germany. And the reason it was in the middle of nowhere, it was the place where, not where the, the nuclear warheads that, that you people had no idea we actually had deployed were deployed, but once every year, every warhead would get taken in for, for maintenance, you know, to just see that it's still a good nuke. And this was the secret base out in the middle of nowhere where they did that. And I was a military policeman, and, we, and, and this secret base had guards, and that was us. And we would be in guard towers, and we were bored out of our minds. Because if they ever got the bad guys to this base, they would have had to already gotten through so much stuff that it would just you know, be amazing. So basically nothing ever happened. We watched grass grow while the people we called the maggots because they were very, very arrogant, the people that actually knew how to disassemble and reassemble nukes would come and go into their secret rooms and stuff. Uh, because they had contempt for us, so we were the tower rats, they were the maggots. And that has nothing to do with this anecdote, so just wipe that part out of your mind. <laughs> now, we're out there and we're watching grass grow, and, and we've got radios to, to do the important stuff, like combo checks and, you know, there's no villains in our clear zone and all that kind of stuff. And then we had landlines, uh, telephones, just because we couldn't do anything that would distract us from watching our, our clear zone, but we could talk to each other just to keep from going, Whack. Otherwise, we had these two-hour stints out in the towers, and everyone would just go crazy uh, and start, like, you know, well, firing at the other tower for fun, um, <laughs> which they didn't like, and various things like that. Uh, and one guy hung himself from the tower, and, and, uh, and then the legend was, of course, it is ghosts haunted the area forever, which was ridiculous. But um, what we would mostly do, which is go out there, tilt our... our chair back a little bit and go to sleep, which they didn't like either, because then, then you don't really see the people, the bad guys, sneaking up on you the way you should. So they'd let us talk to each other, and we, we could connect the entire tower line. And because the, the U.S. Army was so pathetic in those years that we were not exactly getting the top-of-the-line college graduates, the guy running it, the front room, was supposed to be a sergeant E7 or above uh, and officers, but they had to pass this test that shows that they know how to handle nuclear weapons and decide who gets them and who doesn't. Uh, none of them could, so me, lowly little private, was the only one that could pass the test, so I was running the front room, which is this, of, you were in safe hands, trust me. We mostly never lost a nuke, <laughs> mostly. Um, as part of the front room, I had two duties, one which is to keep the commo lines open, and the other is to hand out the keys for the maggots to have access to these nuke weapons. I had the keys. You were not in safe hell. Any, any society that would allow me to have keys to bunkers to nuclear warheads is in dire trouble. But they fixed it. It's a much better army now. Um, or so you say. Or so I say. But we found out, someone introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons, and they said, oh, this is kind of a fun game. And we realized that as long as people didn't bring dice out to roll them in the towers, we could run a game, and the the, office, the the people in charge of the base said, yeah, as long as, basically you're on the phone talking to each other and keeping your eyes out, yeah, that's fine. 
as long as you, they don't want you sneaking books because that takes your eyes off. So I was running this D&D game out on this nuke base <laughs> uh, over the phone lines, but for any kind of dice rolling that the characters came up with, they didn't, you know, it's like, you're going to run the game and roll, roll all the dice. No, 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 no. <laughs> But there's all these other sergeants and officers that are out there doing other things, uh, like you know, actually keeping track of the nukes. And all the guys, all the guards, got to to pick which sergeant would be their dice roller. And these sergeants that could not understand this game. I mean, they were all old guard army, but they would start campaigning. It's like, no, no, man, I roll better than 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 Sergeant Sampson. Get me to be your guy. And then one day, when when. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Winters came out and tried to shut the game down. He said because he was a churchgoer and this was of the devil. And I said, well, let me demonstrate to you how this game goes. And, and we rolled up a character for him and uh, let him play. And he was like a, a he was a, a pig in shit. He was having the greatest time uh, because he was in charge of the whole group because he's Lieutenant Winters. This was a guy so pathetic. He would he would hide in in bushes around corners to surprise people as they walked by so that they couldn't get out. We, we had to salute officers, and we hated Lieutenant Winters so much that we would, we would actually, if we saw him down the way, we would, we would do like vast detours just to not salute him. And he caught on it. He would actually try and, he would leap out and make a salute. He was that pathetic. So we put him in charge, and he was so inept that I couldn't think of it. I, I had him and his band fight a moose, because that's like, how can you, how can a bunch of armed guys not defeat a moose? And yet, he was losing, and so, <laughs> so I had the moose use his magic powder to turn them all into baboons, and then Lieutenant Winters was, because uh, I really just wanted to make Lieutenant Winter a baboon, he got upset and he was gonna close down the game, and said, that's it, that's it, we're out of here. But then I had one of the other characters speak and say, we recognize it, you are like, you know, baboons, any, any ape culture always has the alpha male, and they just recognize instantly that you are the leader of all baboons in this entire dungeon. And all you have to do is find all the rest and you will be the baboon emperor. And he said, this is great. And he played for the rest of the night. And he did not shut down the game. Anyway, I have this love of paper. I, you know, that was my introduction to, to paper gaming. And we had the very first set of rules that were, they, they came in a little box and they were just uh, eight and a half by 11 folded over pamphlet size. And it had been a set of rules that were handed down from person to person and it were missing pages. So we didn't have all the rules. We had to kind of try and figure out what it was and we made up a lot of stuff. So to answer your question is the rule system I would use is that one where we made up most of the stuff because we didn't quite understand how it worked. I've never written it down, but we came up with when we eventually, when I, I eventually left the army got a job at TSR and found out that the real rules were not as fun as the, the uh, not as actually good or fair as the ones, uh, too complex. So it'd be a simple game system that's probably that one that we kind of cobbled together thinking we understood the missing pages in these, in these books, but not, not really to answer long answer your question. But you found out a lot about the army, so that's good. It's like, you're much safer now. Uh, Misao as a base no longer exists. Now you have to be a real, a real achiever to get into the army. So we're better off. Trust me. One more thing. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we were 12 hours on, 12 hours off for eight days, and then we had four days off. So 12 hours of playing D&D, 12 hours a day for eight days. Then we would get our four-day break, and usually we'd get together and play D&D then too. Um, <laughs> in Germany, you could rent castles, uh, and you still can. 
and the big developed ones cost a lot of money for like weddings and things like that. But back then, because the Germans did not celebrate Halloween and did not understand how cool it was, the Frankenstein castle was in terrible disrepair and you could rent it for, I think it was like about 30 bucks for a weekend. Just, you could, all you could do is camp out because there had no facility, it was just ruins. But we would rent the Frankenstein castle bring our sleeping bags and, and our sea rations and stuff. We would stay there for a weekend and play D&D for like three days in a row, uh, camping out in the Frankenstein castle, which you can't do now because now that they've since discovered Halloween and they've kind of refurnished, refurbished the Frankenstein castle, so now it actually costs real money to visit, but those were great days. But we played a lot of D&D, so much so that all of our characters were rising in level. But Gygax and we would get Dragon Magazine and he would, keep doing these scathing editorials about how I've been running the longest D&D campaign ever and none of my characters are above like, you know, seventh level. They haven't gotten that far. So if any of your characters are above, you're all a bunch of Monty Hall dungeon masters. You're just giving stuff away and cut it out. And we had characters like 20th level and all that kind of, and we could not figure out why, because we didn't feel like we were being too lenient. And yet all of our characters were, were pretty high level. What we didn't realize and something he never stated is these were people back home with jobs, and they would play once a week for two hours a week. That's it. And it never occurred to him. That we were playing 12 hours a day, eight days in a row, and then four days of 24-hour uh, <laughs> Um So when I told him that story, we had this little, every new hiree gets to meet the great Gary Gygax. I told him this story, and he goes, you guys may have played more Dungeons and Dragons than any human beings in history, including all of us. So that was pretty cool. Anyway, we really did actually lose a nuke once, but that was because the maggots were screwing with us. You see, in addition to the warheads, they had these like little suitcase nukes that uh, the, the government still says that don't exist. And because they had to get in and out of the site through us and we would strip search people and all that, they just one day for fun decided to see if they could get one of these out of the gates. And they got it as far as the gates and then they did this, yeah, yeah, we got a nuke out. And then they couldn't understand, as soon as they said we got a nuke out, why 30 guns <laughs> were pointed at them and we made the, see the maggots. <laughs> the reason we hated them is we had to stay out there day and night they got to get on the bus and go in for hot lunches that we had to have cold lunches sent out to us, and they got to go home every night. And so they were on their way out for the night, and they did this little trick, and then we put them on the ground because every single person in the base, every maggot got on the ground. And these are colonels and shit that us little privates were putting on the guns and, and pointing guns at. And they could not get up until there was someone of higher rank coming in to ascertain that these guys are okay. And we had to send for the base general who was not on the base. These guys stayed there for hours on the ground. They missed dinner. They, they missed going home. They were crying like little babies the entire time. It was the most best day ever. I'm sorry. Um, and we got the nuke back, so. <laughs> Love this book. Is there more prose coming out? Is one question. He asked about uh, your Quizzed character. I thought what you did with Goldilocks was amazing. Oh, Gold I forgot Goldilocks. I love Goldilocks. The, the, the first question was, are there any more prose novels coming out? And the answer is yes, uh, but not quickly. The novel I'm writing now is a non-fables related, just adult fantasy kind of thing that um, I really need to finish because it's uh, it was due... 
<laughs> September of 09, maybe? Anyway, so, you know, that deadline's approaching. Um, and the one after that is a sequel to Missouri River, my uh, children's book. So the one after that is potentially the next Fables novel. But yes, uh, I want to do more Fables prose. Uh, it's just a fun and, and, uh, and very challenging. The, the thing about comics, having been doing it for about 30 years, is that there's always a challenge to do good stories well. I mean, every new story is always a challenge. But the question of do I have what it takes to do this in this form, do I know how to do comics, those challenges aren't there anymore. I kind of know how, how the, the, the medium works. In prose, those challenges are back. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult for me to write where I don't have an artist to rely on to say, uh, that's okay, he, you know, the artist can handle that. All I have to do is do dialogue. Um, so yes, there will be more prose and, and, and more fables prose. Uh, I'm purposely not allowing myself to think about who might be the characters in the next Fables novel until it's at least a little closer. Uh, and the other thing about uh, Goldilocks, I love Goldilocks. Um, as some of you might know, uh, I'm one of the few conservative politically people in the comic books field. So writing a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist, she, she yearns, she yearns for that day when the, the Marxist wonderland will take place. That was about as fun as, as writing gets. Goldilocks is, is and was just a, a, a lovely and delightful character. And as far as twisting things, really, I mean, Goldilocks as like a, uh, a Stalinist true believer uh, is probably, uh, even more than Geppetto, probably the farthest I've gone with a, with a character as far as taking them out of what they were. All I wanted was a justification to have a woman sleep with a, a bear. So, yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm an intellectual property attorney, and I have tons of clients who come to me with these amazing ideas. Are you about to serve me with something? <laughs> <laughs> it's my job, then you go. That's a great idea. You can't do that. Uh huh. Sure. Is there any non public domain properties that you just fantasized about? God, I would love to have Fables interact with this property, but you can't. And if there is, could you tell us? Oh, I'll, I'll even do better than that. I'll give you stuff that you can, you can uh, find a client and act on and sue me for right now. There is. Uh, the, the question is, 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 there, is there things that, that are still protected that, that I, I so want to use and, and can't? Peter Pan is in that nebulous area. Peter Pan went into uh, public domain in America. And then because the American and UK copyright laws were basically the same, should have gone into public domain in the UK and, and sort of did. But uh, that wily J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, had a very conscientious heart and in his will left all the royalties for Peter Pan stuff to the Ormond Street Hospital for Children. And because it went public domain, this hospital for children was going to lose just vast amounts of, of the income it was counting on. And so the UK did a special act of parliament to, as a one-time consideration, like this property only, we're going to extend the, uh, the copyright. So that's why we could not use Peter Pan and Fables, which is most of you uh, know that I was, my original plan was to make Peter Pan the adversary. Uh, because as a kid, he's, Peter Pan scared me more than anything because he's, he's supposed to be a good guy, but he shows up to your house and steals your kids <laughs> and takes them away. And that's the good guy. And all of Fables was basically so, so I could get that out and on the record. It's like, Peter Pan is not the good guy. Therefore, 
Hook, who's portrayed as a bad guy in the Peter Pan propaganda film, um, <laughs> is obviously really the good guy who is using his pirate ship to go and rescue those kids and bring them back, and that's what we were gonna do. But then DC, the lawyers found out that we couldn't use Peter Pan because of the, them, them damn sick kids uh, who always prevent me from doing what I want. Um, no, it's, uh, so yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't legitimately do that. Uh, we still had to put it on hold, and, and now even though it has eventually gone into public domain, that's kind of a nebulous thing. It's sort of like I, I could use him now, but my making use of it would be one thing. A giant mega corporation like Time Warner, which owns DC and all that, being the first to deprive those, those damn sick kids of their income, they don't think that that would be a very good um, um, uh, public relations coup for them, so, uh, so they still think that it's probably a good idea to leave him alone. And actually since we did Geppetto as the adversary instead, which I think was a, in hindsight a better choice, I don't know that I'd want to do Peter Pan anymore just because he was, would have been perfect in that role and anything less would not be as fun. That said, there's plenty of things. The uh, entire canon of Edgar Rice Burroughs is in this nebulous area where Burroughs was so prolific for so long in his life that this chunk of his work is in the public domain, but this chunk of his work isn't. Plus there's a whole bunch of Burroughs um, progeny uh, sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and great-grandsons and great-granddaughters that have all been kind of living off of the Edgar Rice Burroughs Company. And they got some good lawyers that are very good at playing copyright law against trademark law, which is, yeah, these things are in public domain, but all of those things that are mentioned in this public domain stuff are still active trademarks, so we will sue you into the Stone Age if you do it. So I'm iffy on using any of those. Uh, the Narnia stuff C.S. Lewis is still under a trademark, and I'd love that. I love those Narnia books. So you can see a, an occasional kind of wink, a sly wink at the Narnia stuff in Fables, but I can't actually use them. But where I screwed up was using the Jungle Book characters, because the Jungle Book characters are in the public domain, as long as you don't use the Disney versions of them. So I did not, I used them, but, but stupid fellow that I am, uh, when there was this one scene where all these Jungle Book characters are in line getting their, their comeuppance for the revolution that happened. Spoiler alert, please catch up. Um, <laughs> I had King Louis from the Jungle Book there, who was not actually in the original Kipling. That was the, one of the few characters that Disney made up out of whole cloth. And I forgot, and like an idiot at the time, I'm saying, I should reread the Jungle Book stuff just to make certain I said, no, I know that stuff frontwards and backwards. And I had one little panel where King Louie's in there, and it's, oops, yeah, several people caught, caught me on and said, yeah, you kind of, you kind of, you know, Disney could kill you now. And they could. Either they haven't found out, or even they have at least a little bit of a heart and say, yeah, you made a mistake, but you never, I mean, he's never shown up again. Or maybe it's just because the Disney evil lawyers, evil lawyers that crush people that use their stuff, took a look at the Time Warner evil lawyers who crushed people that used stuff and they said, this would be a real fight. This wouldn't be just a one person roll over and crush the other, unless they both decided to gang up and say, okay, we did not know that he did not know that this, we'll get, and just get him. They could do that, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a case, right? So, so yeah, it could happen, except for so far they have and I've, you know, since never, you, because uh, now we've got very, very careful because of that. One of my favorite characters was Boy Blue. Yes. Charismatic and evil. 
How do you bring your boy group back ever? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tempted to give you an honest answer. We had a no bullshit question. <laughs> yeah, but I told you what really happened to that nuke in the army. I mean, they, they walked right out with it. Um, well, you're absolutely right that, all right, Boy Blue died, spoil alert. And is he coming back? Um, I love the fact that we could create a fictional character in which people's kind of heart and soul and, and desires are invested in him enough to want him back. That is so lovely and heartwarming. Balance against the desire to say, okay, you guys get what you want, we'll bring him back, is that desire to make his long lingering death mean something. It's probably my favorite, not my favorite storyline, but that moment, that one time when he knows he's dead and finally everyone else knows he's dead and he finally has that moment of confrontation with Rose Red to say, snap out of it, you silly girl. The absolutely true justification that dying people get to finally tell the unvarnished truth moment. I love that scene. And so there's that part of me that said, why undercut that by bringing him back? So those two forces in balance. Within the, in the medium is the evil part of me that loves teasing the people <laughs> with stuff like coming out with the scars that you know uh, blue is coming back which as i say is not a promise it's a it's a hope expressed by the, the fans blue is coming back or in a certain christmas issue that a certain phantomy ghosty person that had an interaction with rose red seems to kind of sort of look like maybe he might be the ghost of um so my no bullshit answer as much as, and this is a very, I'm going to answer a very, very narrow part of your question, is the evil part of me loves those teases so much that that will go on for a while just because making you poor bastards suffer is one of my fondest uh, uh, hobbies. So um, I can't answer, uh, you know, well, I could answer. I'm not going to. <laughs> that is all we have time for, guys. Oh, oh, for the, the Fable Town and Beyond, uh, we have a website. It has just basically started since we're, we've just officially announced. Fablescon.com. Sign up for newsletters and updates. Hello, my name's Ben Templesmith. Uh, I've just had a threesome with some, several large hairy men. And uh, I'm known for my work, like 30 Days a Night, Fell, whatnot. And uh, apparently now, gratuitous sex. Uh, gay sex. <laughs> you know, I make enough jokes about it. I, I wear suits in Southern California. If you wear suits or any long sleeve item. Uh, apparently you dress too well, you must be gay. So, what the hell? There's some large hairy men here. They're not unattractive. So, uh, yes, I'm known for that, and I'm an artist and a writer, and you are watching or listening to, depending on what drug you're using, The Nerdy Show. Alright, so what I'm showing Aaron right now is um, the artwork of Erica Henderson. Heroes Con's a family-friendly environment, so she didn't bring these with her, I guess, but uh, she's done a series of basically Justice League beefcake drawings. Here's Guy Gardner in a construct tub. Yeah, it's like the dudes in like sexy poses. You yeah. Know? That's, that's, that's cool. They got um, Booster Gold and Skeets uh, <laughs> doing some dishes naked. Yes. <laughs> they got Martian Manhunter and a pile of cookies. Yeah. yeah uh, Ted Core Blue Beetle washing the bug. Yeah, look at this, uh, look at this hot animal, man. He's a beast. Yeah, that's nice. Good stuff, man. Yeah, he looks well, like Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have a link to where you can check these out and actually uh, purchase them uh, online. It's always awesome to see uh, the whole let me draw sexy pictures of a comic book character switch to the dudes for a change. Yeah, why not? Yeah. You know, everyone's they, they have idealized body types, uh, just like the females. They're just not often 
shown in you know gratuitous you know ways with but they still have those idealized body types yeah. i mean it doesn't get any better than that whether you expose it or not <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah and these are these are all uh despite booster gold's butt these are all non-nude yeah so yeah, uh, non-nude so safe for work like with butt you know you can show like the crack in a, a certain amount right like right. how much is it like two-thirds of the butt or something you know it, it gets tricky it depends on what decade you're in <laughs> I was thinking like Facebook rules, but oh shit, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's something specific too, you know. So in a future episode of Flame On, you're gonna hear some of Brian's panel with Hickman and uh, the other guys from Hickman's books, such as uh, Mick Patera and Ryan Bodenheim. It was a really cool panel, and those two artists couldn't be more different, you know, like yeah. in personality. I mean, obviously their art's way different, but. One guy seems to be really meticulous and really, you know, like OCD. And the other guy is just like, hey, I'm making this stuff as I go along. This is fun. You know, like, let's have some, you know, let's have a good time, which was the Manhattan's Project guy. Yeah. And, you know, Manhattan's Project is amazing, dude. I love that book. Of course, we've gotten, you know, four issues of that, only two issues of Secret. So maybe the meticulous guy needs to, like, pick up the pace some, but still. You know, it was one of the cooler things that we saw at uh, at Heroes Con that I didn't expect. Uh, you took me over to the booth of Jason Horn, the guy oh, behind yeah. Ninja Sore, yeah. which is a webcomic. And, uh, a he's, ninja dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's about to uh, release an app, which has something I've absolutely never seen before. If you're using an, an iPad or, or whatever device, a tablet, you um, do a, a two-finger drag, and you can actually slide through the entire production process of a page. Right. You can go all the way down to pencils and then very slowly bring it up to, to the different inking phases and the different color phases. It's not a not a three-step process. There's maybe like five layers in there. And depending on how far you drag it, that's the layer you get to. And once you drag it up to a certain point, if you want to read the entire thing in pencils, then it, you just keep sliding over. And you can alter which level of detail you want it to be in and, and keep checking it out. You know, it doesn't really you know mean anything, but it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's a really, really cool way to interact with the process of drawing the comic. To me, it shows like, well, we have this digital thing. What can we do with it? What what can we do that's fun? Yeah. You know, because with and a new. comic, uh, you can get, you know, the the pencils version or whatever, the ash can, or if they want to do like a, a penciled version of something. Usually they do that with like the big artists, you know, mm-hmm. or you can get the colored version or whatever. But this, they're just saying, hey, this isn't print. You know, you're not holding your hand, but you can do this cool stuff. You know, like it's neat. And, you know, his uh, Ninja Sword thing is is fun. It's a funny book. There's also um, an, a game that's inside the comics app that actually continues the the adventure of uh, at the very like the last story arc or whatever the action goes right into a uh, a game in the yeah. app. Yeah, so. dude has a time machine gun and he keeps putting these like uh, people at you and you have to shoot them and throw them back in the portals. It yeah. was fun. Yeah, I don't know when it's out, but it's out very soon, and if possible, we'll link to it on this episode's page. And the guy's a, a super sweet, nice guy. Let's talk real quick about uh, what books are out that we're uh, that we're into right now. Oh, for me, I've liked all of the Before Watchmen so far. I know, like, I sound like um, you know not snobby enough saying that, but you know, <laughs> I liked it. It's fun. I like revisiting these characters, and you know, I know they haven't really broken new ground much with these first issues, but it's cool to revisit that. It's like nostalgic to me, you know. And the art's all great and really enjoyed it yeah I, I couldn't say no to silk specter amanda connor's art is just uh it's hit a new level it's incredible isn't she co-writing that too she may be i, I would it's like this coming of age be. story with the two of them and you yeah. know it's it, it's, it it's really well good and um man uh the uh the writing in comedian 
was uh, was outstanding. Like his relationship with JFK, seeing that on the page, like yes, like was just absolutely outstanding. And and his relationship with Jackie Onassis. Oh I mean, my that god, was cool. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything, but let's just say if if uh, if you're amused at all by Kennedy lore, you oh, should yeah. definitely pick up this. It's definitely Camelot. <laughs> I hope in the last issue, um, the comedian kills Alan Moore, though. That would be the best. But <laughs> You know, they need to save that for last, but that would be cool. Something I don't think we've had a chance to talk about on the show is the interview in uh, the issue zero of the Bleeding Cool magazine. Oh, really? Yeah, we have not. Awesome. Yeah, there's so much controversy about um, before Watchmen, and I, I know DC dropped the ball a few times on... You know, being able to appease Alan Moore and being able to... There's a few simple things they could have done to um, supposedly make him happy, you mm-hmm. know. But anyway, at this point, he said that, you know, they shouldn't do it. He's not supportive of it. He doesn't think anyone should support it. And and he's um, upset that some otherwise uh, sane writers and, and creators are embarrassing themselves in this way, you know. And then we had Lynn, Lynn Ween, who um, created Swamp Thing, co-created um, Swamp Thing and Wolverine. You know, he's a dude that's pretty up there and, and that he was the editor of Watchmen and had some seemingly integral roles in making Watchmen what it is in the final product. As the editor, he was saying like, no, dude, you, all he did was reimagine some Charlton characters. And, you know, if I was all pissy about how he reimagined my Swamp Thing, he wouldn't have a career in American comics today. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, was, it was really a no holds barred discussion. And a lot of the things he said really put some things in perspective. Now, it's pretty easy to criticize Alan Moore for being upset about the whole Watchmen thing because, you know, it's a brilliant book. We absolutely love it. You know, and yeah, DC's putting this out to make more money. There's of no course. secret there. Uh, but like Aaron said, it is cool to see, you know, people doing some new things with these characters, just like some introspective, neat stuff. Uh, but really, the amount of upset that Alan Moore is is very unwarranted since a lot of his career is built off of writing alternate versions of other people's work. Right. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just he's being kind of a hypocrite about it. And um, man, Len Wein, based on a lot of context from his work with Alan, really, really puts it all on the table. And uh, it's it's pretty ironclad, you know, as, as a case for not necessarily for before Watchmen, but for it being OK. Yeah. Like not that, you know that you have to read this or it has to happen, but that it's perfectly acceptable for this to happen. It was a work for hire with with essentially uh, company characters, you know, that, you know, they bought the Charlton characters and, and originally uh, Alan Moore wrote it with those characters. I wrote the outline with those characters and then the uh, head honcho at DC at the time. It's like, yo, you're not going to kill half these characters we just bought, <laughs> you know, like, no. <laughs> so he reimagined them and it's... It's better for Watchmen. it. I love but- Watchmen. I love that it showed that this is what you can do with the comics medium, even with superheroes. Even with superheroes, you can do this amazing stuff. And so, like, I have the same reverence for it that I think anyone else would have. But it's also, you know, the nostalgic thing. It's also, you know, I, I keep going back to the guilty pleasure thing of being the um, Frosted Mini Wheats, you know? And the, the kid <laughs> in me side is like, oh, yeah, this is awesome! You know, and if I want to be cynical about it, I was like, oh, you know, this is unnecessary, but... At what point in your life are you going to stop saying everything's unnecessary? Because, you know, everything is unnecessary. None of this pop culture shit. Yeah, yeah pop culture is entirely unnecessary. I mean, if we were just going to do what's necessary, we'd be down at the soup kitchen right now feeding the homeless. I mean, but we're not. We're talking about pop culture. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's all I'm going to say about that. But um, Rich Johnson from um, 
Bleeding Cool, which this is the magazine issue zero that we're talking about the interviews in. He told me when, you know, I was gushing about this was a great interview. I really liked how No Holds Barred it was. He said, wait till you get the Alan Moore interview that's in issue one of Bleeding Cool magazine. I was like, oh, my God. I wasn't around for when he said that. That's yeah. shit. Shit. Playing both sides. Yeah. Oh, why not? Man. That's, that's oh, Bleeding Cool. Man. That is that is Bleeding Cool. <laughs> that's great. Mm. We mentioned Saucer Country, I think, last Nerdy Show yeah. comic show. But yeah, I, I want to people pick, you know, we're talking about things uh, Mark Wade and Clevenger yeah. were reading. I want to reiterate how good that book is and that everybody should probably check it out. Uh, also, um, you may have seen our E3 uh, 2012 coverage where we uh, hung out with Telltale Games and uh, did an interview and they showed us uh, the second episode of the Walking Dead game they do. Well, I admitted at the time I hadn't played the first one. It looked interesting to me, but I hadn't checked it out yet. And then we, when we saw the second episode being played, all of us who were there were just like glued to the screen. We couldn't believe what we were seeing and we couldn't wait to see what happened next. So I picked up chapter one. It's incredible. If you love the Walking Dead comic... Especially and especially if you're jaded by the show and, and the pacing of the show and everything that you could possibly not like about the show. Though I, I like the show just fine, but it's not the same, you know? Yeah. This is something that is so completely in the vein of the comic, but it is also some of the most incredible interactive storytelling I have ever, ever seen. There is a scene where a dude gets his leg caught in a bear trap and you have to decide how to deal with it. And you can try to like break the chain on it. You can try to deconstruct yeah. the, the mechanism and everything. And as you're doing it, uh, he's screaming because he's in a bunch of pain. Zombies are coming. Uh, time's running out. And uh, eventually there's a, there's a bunch of different options. And it's like Mass Effect. You know, it's layered. By the time you get to the end of this game and all the episodes are out, your game is going to be different from your friend's game by a lot. And with this one, the path that they chose during this demo was to chop the guy's leg off. And as they're doing this, it doesn't take one chop. This isn't like a movie. It takes <laughs> It takes three. And you have the option to stop going in the middle of it because the guy's screaming too loud, and maybe you have second, you have, you have doubts about it because he's in so much pain and the acting's so good. You're like, oh god, what am I doing? This is such a terrible idea. Why did I start chopping this guy's leg off? I should just stop. Wow, <laughs> it's incredible. So if you're a comic fan, you should really check out Telltale's Walking Dead game. Uh, it's Kirkman approved. Yeah, and um, earlier on in this episode with the Fables panel. Yeah, we talked about the Fables Telltale game coming, and I am super <laughs> excited for what's going to happen with that. As far as comic books, you know, there's so much good stuff coming out. I mean, Saga has not disappointed. Even the issue four, I loved issue four. I, I loved issue three. I mean, this Saga book is just 22 pages of just awesome. Like all the characters are just dead on doing amazing things. I I know it's kind of like ADD, and I know it's plenty of sex stuff in it, but I don't care. That's awesome to me, you know, like that's it's cool. fun. It's fun and weird and super quirky. And it's funny too. And and it has his his signature um cliffhanger at the end of everything that's just like the craziest cliffhanger like possible. And he just has this skill with it where, you know, it doesn't have to be action, it doesn't have to be violence even. It can just be like he mutters about like his first wife in his coma state and it's like who the fuck is Gwendolyn? And like reading, I was like, I want to know who the fuck Gwendolyn is too. What the fuck is going on? He never mentioned this shit. And you know, who's not going to get the next issue? I mean, the book sucks you in. I got a challenge for you. If uh, if you're at a store and, and you, you see issue four on the shelf, just just flip open the first page of issue four and, and look at the crazy shit that's right there and try <laughs> not to, you know, immediately start reading this book. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. I really, really dig Saga. So this is a, this is a very um, panel heavy. 
uh, Nerdy Show Comic Show, and uh, I think you can expect some more regular Nerdy Show Comic Show programming in the vein of our first episode coming up in our third episode. Absolutely. Uh, and I guess it's made kind of pointless for us to consider these second and third episodes since they take place within the Nerdy Show numbering of episodes, but since we started doing the Nerdy Show Comic Show as a kind of theme within the programming, it makes sense, kind of. Yeah, why not? Like, yeah. say, say you want to be like, hey, I want to listen to another really comic heavy thing you know you yeah have that little tab to go to exactly so so we uh aaron's gonna be at san diego yay i, I might be at san diego we've i've been traveling a lot so it's kind of a gray area for me right now we'll, we'll find out and uh, i was on the fence too with yeah. it until um mike malvey from atomic comics wanted to share the hotel room with me and i'm like all right cool because i know that guy he's gonna have you know awesome people up in the room he's gonna have great meetings set up he's gonna have great dinners and whatnot that i can tag along with so it's not mm-hmm. just sharing the the expense it's also like the craziness of him like, yeah i mean he stocks up the fridge full of alcohol like, <laughs> but you know he also he's he's an old man too so you know he wants to go to bed when he wants to go to bed so uh, you know, he's gonna party I love going to bed yeah <laughs> well you know at san diego you know i want to party until a little bit after last call and by four i want to be asleep by 4 a.m <laughs> You know, call you me have, crazy. You do have call to wake me up crazy. The next day, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you know, I I roomed with him last year and it, and it was good. So yeah. So you know, be on the lookout for us at uh, at different places and let us know uh, what you'd like to see us cover in upcoming Nerdy Show comic shows on the forums. So just go to nerdyshow.com/slash/nerdyforums and uh, or click the forums tab, and you'll you'll find the discussion there. So bye. I'm Cap. Uh, bye. I'm Aaron. And taking us out of this episode is a track called In Space No One Can Hear You Scream from Nuclear Bubble Wrap's recent EP, Abacadaver.
Hi, this is Christopher Lambert. I want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is brought to you by a comic shop, Nerdapalooza, and the Oviedo branch of Play and Trade. If you have questions or comments, please read us in to info at nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show podcasts via the iTunes store. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Nerdy Show or friend us on Facebook. <laughs> if you enjoyed what you heard, support Nerdy Show by telling a friend, or better yet, giving you money by visiting the Nerdy Show, picking up a t-shirt, donate directly to the Nerdy Show for cool, nerdy perks. These guys know how to fight the soldiers of Outworld. They didn't ask you to come back to do Mortal Kombat 2. I'm not quite sure why. I would have done it for free. I don't know why they asked James Remar to play Raiden in Mortal Kombat 2 Annihilation. Hey, I stole your car from the party. Get over it. <laughs>